Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Families are formed in different ways, including through adoption. Today, we're talking about the questions a family asks before making the decision to adopt. International adoptions by American families are on the decline. Coming up, we'll find out why and look at the trends for adopting kids born in the U.S. Now, what's the process like before a child is welcomed home? An adoptive father will join us to talk about his experience after fostering and then raising several children with his partner. We also want to hear from people who've been adopted. Are you one of them? You can join our conversation. You can email us where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I want to welcome uh, my guests into the studio. Uh, first, Marvin Chrisley is a physical education teacher at Lincoln Bassett School in New Haven, Connecticut, and he was adopted in 1972 by a family in the town of Ledgerd. Marvin, wel- welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, our other guest today is a name that many of you are familiar with. It's Kevin Lembo, a Connecticut State Comptroller. Today, he's here to talk about uh, his very personal story about being an adoptive and foster parent. Kevin, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. It's great to see you. I wanted to start with you, Marvin. Uh, Again, I mentioned to our listeners that you were adopted in the early uh, 1970s. Tell us uh, how old you were, and do you remember anything about that period of your life when you were adopted? Oh, yes. Um, I was adopted when I was around three, going to be four. Um, I do remember uh, the first home we lived in. Um, I remember the social worker who would bring me to my new parents. I actually thought she was going to be my new mom for a second, so I was a little confused when uh, she left me with this family. But, uh, yeah, it was all uh, – I remember the house that we lived in was a small little house, had a little play set outside. seemed very nice. So before you uh, went to your family, um, do you remember the foster homes that you were placed in? Um, Very vaguely. I just remember I was in a home with some other kids, but um, in terms of where or just, I just have visual images of it, but I was really young. Mm. You mentioned you thought your social worker at first was going to be your new mom, um, but when um, she placed you into this home with your parents, uh, do you remember um, you know what they said to you in that, that first time? Um, no, not exactly. Mm-hmm. Um I just remember just being confused because, um, well, one, they didn't look like me, so I didn't think that this was someplace I was going to stay for a long time. But uh, I just remember it was very welcoming. So you're African-American and your adoptive parents are white? Yes, they are. Mm. So uh, tell us why, um, as you grew older, did they ever talk to you about you know the decision to why they wanted to adopt? Because they also had biological children? Um, yes. Well, I have four brothers. And uh, we didn't all, <clears throat> excuse me, we all didn't come in a uh, traditional way. They first, they, they would just want to have a big family. So when they first got together, they decided to um, foster a child, um, which is my older brother. And then they eventually adopted him. And then um, they ended up adopting me. And then they had one of their own. And then they adopted another. 
and then they had another one of their own. <laughs> so big family. Yeah. That must have been fun for the holidays. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because we're, we're talking about the process of adoption today, I want to welcome to, into the conversation now Kevin Lembo, because uh, you and your husband um, adopted three children, I believe? We did. Three. And done. Three and done. <laughs> Three and done. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm curious about like when you first thought about um, fostering and then, you know, why proceed with an actual adoption? Yeah. So so it was clear to us um, when we first met even that we wanted an expanded family. Um, part of what we wanted was something that we saw our parents have, and that was sort of building a family. Um, and weren't quite sure we would find others like us, you know, two men, like who would want to build a family. And all the role models at that time were, you know, Broadway actors and hairdressers. And like, you know, it was kind of hard to see a visual image of what this might look like. So then when you meet someone who has the same dream that you do, you know, there was an instant connection. And we pursued that after a couple of years of being together and knowing that this would be forever. Uh, we began the process and, and weren't really looking to foster as a temporary, but looking to adopt. Um, and ultimately uh, found our, our two oldest sons in the New York State list of waiting children. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're kids who, um, because their biological families um, had experienced trauma, were suffering from addiction, whatever the issue was, uh, couldn't parent. Um, and so they uh, were looking for forever families for them. And they became our kids pretty quickly. I remember flipping through what was then a binder mm-hmm. um, and seeing uh, these two little boys who were two and a half and four, five at the time, and thinking, these are our children. Like mm-hmm. something happened between the page and our emotions, and then it touched off quite a, a legacy mm-hmm. of uh, placement and training and trauma and dealing with all the things that a child who has been through that experience, mm-hmm. no matter how young, um, actually carries with them on one level or another. You mentioned this binder. So when you and your husband um, came to an agreement that you wanted to adopt, you wanted to build your family together. So where do you go? If you were in New York State, are there adoption agencies? Or was it the, the state uh, child welfare department that you, uh, you know, sat down with? I'm just curious about the process. Yes. I mean, there were a list of adoption agencies to choose from. And as we called through them at that time, it was the early 90s, uh, we got hung up on quite a bit, right? Because at that time, it wasn't that usual for for two people of the same gender to be looking to adopt. Um, And ultimately found through the public system um, an opportunity uh, with a social worker who was going to write our home study and be with us on this journey. But there are many different ways to get there. Some of it's private, some of it's through lawyers if you're doing infant adoption. And then the, the, the system, the child welfare system, um, there are kids who want, if they can't go home you know, to their birth families, they want forever. You know, they want the security of forever. And uh, they're waiting for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a, a real opportunity and I would say an obligation if we can uh, to step into that space and, and try to uh, do what's right and best. This is where we live. Today we're focusing in on adoption. In studio with me is Kevin Lembo, who's an adoptive and, and foster parent. Also Marvin Chrisley, a physical education teacher uh, in New Haven who was adopted uh, when he was just three years old. You can join our conversation too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live, especially if you've been adopted or if you've been an adoptive uh, parent. Um, maybe it's something you're actually thinking about down the road. We want to hear about what some of the questions that uh, you have. Uh, Kevin, um, you're, you're a gay couple, so I'm curious 
what that meant for when you sat down and said you wanted to adopt, uh, what year this was, and what were some of the um, questions that uh, you know maybe these child welfare uh, authorities had for you, and even what society thought back then about a gay couple adopting children. Um, times have certainly changed a lot from 1991 to mm -hmm. today. Um, and uh, so you, you end up being the first, right? And sometimes the only in different environments. And that's a bit of learning too. You know, so if you've, whatever your difference is, and I think we all have a difference, when you walk into a room that's not made up of people like you, suddenly you are the one, whether you were the only black kid in a white classroom or you were the only person with a disability in a room of folks who don't have an obvious disability. Um, so we were pretty obvious, you know, the two white men with ultimately three black children, um, you notice us, uh, you know, we're, mm -hmm. it's not like you can hide in plain sight. Um, and the reactions were um, generally very, very positive. Everything from sort of uh, naive questions. I remember an old nun uh, that we came in contact with through all of this uh, said, I have one question. Who cooks? Like somehow in her mind, gender roles demanded that, you know, some the mother would cook. And so without a mother, like, what do you do? Um, but we also knew that we had responsibilities to make sure that our children not only had strong women in their lives as well, but certainly a larger family of choice, you know, that we've built around us that is extremely diverse and, you know, includes lots of African-American people and others who can uh, be the bridge for our kids when we hit a point where I can't help them with something. And as a parent, it's really hard to realize I can't help you with that, you know, but we have people who love you who can. Um, but, but, but we ran into a court system at that time that was not ready for us. Um, and our adoption was ultimately denied. We uh, showed up at the court for what we thought was a finalization hearing. And uh, the judge asked from what seemed like a very high judge's dais, uh, why are the children here? And our lawyer said, well, Your Honor, it's their finalization day. And he said, no, this is a best interest hearing. And he ultimately denied the adoption under a thinly veiled legal argument that the social service district had not demonstrated that there was a two-parent family, and I'm doing air quotes that you can't see right now, a two-parent family available for them, but legal uh, marriage wasn't legal at that time. And uh, we knew what he was after. Mm -hmm. So um, tens of thousands of dollars later in legal fees and a lot of uncertainty, and most importantly, uncertainty for these two children who had had so much trauma already in their life, suddenly the prospect that we tried to shield them from of being ripped out of our home um, became very real. Fast forward, uh, we went to the appellate division of the New York Supreme Court, um, and not only uh, had his decision overturned, but the court did something very unusual, which is they finalized their adoption from the appellate division bench. They didn't send us back. Um, and that judge, I'm happy to say, got stuck on that court bench and didn't receive a promotion for mm -hmm. 10 years thereafter because he let his bias get in the way of what was right and in the best interest of these kids. Mm -hmm. Wow. So uh, when you got that decision, Kevin, what did it mean when you were able to welcome those two boys to your home? Um, you know, the forever family was forever, and no one could ever uh, change that. Now, it wasn't the end of the story. Frankly, it was the beginning of, you know, lots of things that you deal with as a parent um, and that children deal with. And, and I think I've said it before, but I think the, the recognizing the trauma and having that trauma inform your parenting 
um, even if they were little itty-bitty ones when they were removed from their biological family, that loss is really something that, that kids carry with them. And so understanding everything from how you discipline to how you communicate to how you love them, um, uh, it's against that backdrop of, of loss and trauma. Mm-hmm. Now, Marvin, I mentioned earlier that you were adopted. So you were yes. in a transracial family. Mm-hmm. That's the term. Right. Uh, so how did you navigate your identity as you know, a black boy growing up in, uh, with a family whose parents were white? And what did you run up against? Because you were also growing up in, the, I believe, the eastern side of the yes. state. So not a lot of diversity over oh, in Ledger. No. Um, I definitely uh, knew I was adopted. Um, and uh, it's funny because people who don't know me know my story. You know, they ask, oh, when did you know you were adopted? And then I say, um, well, my parents are white. So I pretty much knew right away <laughs> that they were adopted. But, um, yeah, uh, not too much. Uh, like a lot of people have misconceptions of, you know, how a uh, young black child is supposed to act, especially if you're from uh, a predominantly white neighborhood. And uh, I didn't have that. And so, yeah, I didn't really have um, strong, like, African-American type of identity. Um, I just had a identity, which was, you know, just me kind of thing. Um, uh, Just to fast forward a little bit, when I actually came to New Haven for the first time, one of the kids asked me why, you know, why I talk so white. Mm. I was like, oh, I didn't know that that's how I spoke. And then they also asked me if I actually knew white people. I said, oh, my gosh, let me just tell you. I said my half my family is white, so uh, yeah, it was it was a difficult thing. Mm. And what about your relationship with your other siblings? Did that ever come up? Um, yes, because um, well, I don't know if you the, the dynamics of my family is I have my older brother who was adopted; he was Caucasian, and then um, I had they had <coughs> I have two other Caucasian brothers who with their biologicals, and then I have one African-American uh, adopted brother as well who's younger than me. And uh, obviously um, my brother David, who was African-American, he and I knew that you know we were the, the odd ones in the family, mm-hmm. but uh, we didn't feel uh, the love any less. Uh, for uh, our listeners who may also uh, be raising children in a uh, transracial family, any advice that you have uh, for parents uh, when you may be bringing in uh, children from different backgrounds and how to uh, work identity questions out as they grow older? Well, I'm glad you asked me that question because it's something that I've been thinking about a lot and that um, I was adopted by a wonderful family that my mom, she... Uh, just loved all cultures. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like that she wanted to have a little black kid or a little Asian kid. She just, you know, she just loved all kids. And I truly believe in my heart that uh, I might not have had some of the opportunities, you know, go to college and just, you know, be successful as I've been if, you know, this family didn't, you know, take a chance on me and, you know, raise me the way they did. This is where we live. You can join our conversation today on adoption. My guest today, Marvin Chrisley, uh, who's a physical education teacher in New Haven, Connecticut, who was adopted. And also Kevin Lembo. He's our Connecticut State Comptroller. But here, he's here today to talk about his being an adoptive and foster parent. And you can join us, too. Uh, Lamique is calling from Hartford. Lamique, go ahead with your question or comment. Oh, uh, my, uh, my question is, 
Um, with regards to the gentleman who is currently um, a guest on the show, uh, did he ever find his um, biological uh, you know, family? Because I, I didn't catch up the, the beginning of the show. Uh, Lamique, so we're actually going to get to that um, and after our break, a little bit more about uh, the next questions uh, Marvin had uh, as he was an adult uh, to try to find his biological family. But Lamique, um, do you have any connection with uh, the adoption process? And I was adopted in, in 1972, yes. Oh, yes. Wow, My story it's a good year. Very interesting, to say the least. <laughs> um, I, I was... Um, uh, raised by an African-American family. Uh, I grew up looking Latino, if you will, somewhat Latino, um, because of where I grew up in the northeast section of the Bronx. Um, I, didn't find, I didn't find out that I was adopted until I was 11 years old because of the color differences in my family. All of my brothers and sisters were African-American. And I was the only one that came out with curly straight hair, light, light, light brownish, reddish complexion and had many questions, as most kids do. They aren't necessarily biased about color, but I had questions as to why we were so different. And my, mo- my mother and my um, uh, adopted father were very fair-skinned, very fair-skinned. So um, at 11 years old, I found out that I was, in fact, adopted, that uh, I was adopted in 1972. But in uh, 1992, um, 91, between 91 and 92, because I had set out, I had set out in the late 80s to find my family and had come across obstacles, unbelievable um, amount of obstacles with regards to why do you want to find your family? And I'm talking about people who were at the sheltering arms for children's services in lower Manhattan to the courthouse um, asking um, the, the county court clerk about, you know, um, getting my documents so I could find family members. Um, and I luckily, uh, in 1991, sorry, I came across uh, a clerk inside the hospital which I was born, and he accidentally gave me my, my, um, birth, my birth record. And it took me six days to find my family thereafter. And between 1991 and November, November 15th, matter of fact, my, oh my God, just thinking about it, my anniversary is tomorrow. <laughs> of 1990, 1991, and uh, as as I got all of this information about my family, and when I found my, I found I ran into my father in the street in Lower Manhattan, uh, um, and my mother I found two weeks after she was in Queens, and I'm up here in the Northeast Bronx. I come to find out I got family all over the place, but here, here was the here was the the, the kicker. I found out that I'm not only Native American Indian, um, I'm a descent, descendant of a tribe from South Carolina that the federal government oh, wow. has listed as extinct. Mm. I'm an Indian chief now. Well, that's not even half of it. I begin to tell you how I found my family. I, everyone I've spoken to about, and I used to work for Ricky Lake. I was Ricky Lake's bodyguard in 1993. But everyone that I've spoken to has told me, that I need to either write a book or do some type of documentary. 
Well, Lamik, thank you so much for calling in. We are intrigued. Maybe you could uh, leave your number with our producer. We'd love to hear more about your story, but we do appreciate uh, you calling in today on Where We Live as we talk about adoption. Everyone has a a really interesting uh, story to tell. And and coming up, we don't want to tease our listeners anymore. We want to hear more about uh, Marvin's search. Again, Marvin Chrisley is uh, one of our guests today who was adopted, and Kevin Lembo, an adoptive and foster parent. And we have some people on the line who are thinking about adoption option or who want to talk about their experience, we'll get to your calls too. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about adoption. My guests are Kevin Lembo, Connecticut State Comptroller, but he's also an adoptive and foster parent. And Marvin Chrisley, a physical education teacher at Lincoln Bassett School in New Haven. He was adopted by a family in 1972 in the town of Ledger. Uh, Marvin, uh, we wanted to know more about um, as you grew up in a loving family. Uh, when did you start thinking about your biological parents? And when did you begin the search? Um, well, Growing up, I always had questions about uh, my biological family because obviously looking at the Chrisley family tree, uh, there's not too many roots that uh, look like me. So um, plus, you know, I would uh, see different African-American children or people around town or just in general and just wonder like, you know, could I be related to this person? I don't even know because, you know, I just I don't know who my biological parents are. So um, fast forward to probably around um, my senior year in college, I just decided that, you know, I'd inquire about what the process was to find my biological parents. And um, I decided to contact DCF. And uh, at first I chickened out because the funny story is that uh, um, the first person that I talked to when I called this random DCF number was a neighbor who worked for DCF who lived around the corner. And I was like, oh, sorry, no, wrong number kind of thing. So <laughs> I was kind of a little deterred. And then a couple months later, um, I called again and spoke to someone different. And they told me about the process that, you know, if my biological mother had um, put on my records that she could be found, then, you know, I could search for her. Now, my father, on his side, he did not put that. So... I was given information about him and his family, just about how many siblings I had at the time and what he did, but that's the extent of what I know about his side of the family. But my mother had put um, that I could find her. Mm. But uh, the process, so when I finally got enough courage, it's like, all right, let's see if we can do this. Um, It took a very long time because my mom didn't have all the traditional uh, like she didn't own a home, she didn't have a car, uh, she didn't have a driver's license. So the ways that they would have found her, they couldn't find her. So uh, it was like over a year I was starting to get, you know, deterred and just like this is not going to happen. And um, then finally uh, my social worker said, well, you know what, I have one person who works for Social Security they might be able to help. And uh, I don't think this was one of the traditional ways, but she's like, I have one last thing we could exhaust. <laughs> And not more than a day later, she called me like, I found her, I found her. And I was like, what, uh, what? And then she goes, I'll call, you, I'll call you back. And I was like, you just told me you found her. And, and now then- you tell me to hang up and like, I'm supposed to just, <laughs> how am I supposed to process that? And then she's like, she wants to meet you, she wants to meet you, but she can only meet you at this time. And I'm like, I have to make a quick decision. I was like, oh, should I do it? Should I not do it? I was like, 
you know, she can answer a lot of questions I've had over the years and stuff. And uh, I thought it was time. So I had the meeting. So before we hear about that first meeting, tell me what your adoptive parents thought about this. They support your search. Um, well, my uh, mom always said that if I ever wanted to do it in the future, that that was something that she would support. Um, when I actually did it, she didn't know that I was actually searching. It was, wasn't until, like, she knew I was a uh, – I had told her that I found her or was getting closer that she knew that I actually went forward with it. But she was okay with it. So take us to that day that uh, you were able to meet your biological mother. Oh, I'll never forget it <laughs> because I was so nervous. And I was like, what do I say when I talk? So I, like, I grabbed, I don't know, like three picture albums of, like, you know, anything I've done in my entire life. <laughs> and then I, um, the meeting was down in Bridgeport. And from Ledger to Bridgeport, it's only about, you know, maybe an hour, a little over an hour. I think I got there, like, three or four hours early. That's how nervous I was. <laughs> I was actually uh, sitting at, like, a Wendy's, and I kept looking at, like, is that her over there? No, I can't be her. No, that's not her. Like, I didn't even know. That's how nervous I was. But when I got to the office, um, they didn't think she was going to show because she was late, and it was just like, you know. Um, then, again, my social worker, who loves surprises, ran out into the room was like, oh, my gosh, she's out in the hall. you got to get ready. got to get ready. I was like, what do you mean get ready? And she thought that it would be easier for me to walk in on her than for her to walk in on me. So I had to go down in the hallway and hide. And when they went by, I would go wait in the lobby and they'd come get me. But when I went down in the hallway, people were like, what are you doing down there? Are you hiding in the hallway? And I was like uh, trying to explain what the situation was. So uh, that was a funny thing. But I went in there and uh, they came and got me and I met her. And... Uh, Tried to be very professional because, like, I had all these emotions going in. So I was like, shook her hand. I was like, oh, it's very nice to meet you, you know, Marvin. And then, as I tend to do a lot, just started talking just about everything. I think I told her something when I was four or five and just, like, I was like, wait a minute. I'm just talking about stuff that she probably doesn't even know. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, uh, um, yeah, it turned out to be a good thing. Mm-hmm. When you uh, saw her face for the first time, did you think, you know, that there were similarities between the two of you? Um, yeah, a little bit. Um, my mom was older when she had me, so uh, she was 45 when she had given me up. So when I found her, she was in her 60s, close to 70, so she was a little bit older. And you were able to continue to have a relationship with her after that first meeting? Oh, yeah. we. Um, she uh, got retro soul. She passed last year. Um, at the age of 94, but uh, she uh, had a wonderful relationship. Um, she actually, you know, um, she has a whole side of her family. I mean, I have a couple brothers on and sisters on her side and cousins and aunts and uncles, and I got to know them over the years, and um, they were actually upset with her because they were like, they didn't know that she was pregnant with me because mm. they're from Michigan and Alabama, and she was in Connecticut, and so they didn't know that she had given me up. When did you finally come around to talking with her about the decision to give you up? And, and how did you um, get to that question? Um, that was uh, probably after a few weeks because I, I just wanted to know that, like, I was okay. Um, something that, you know, my adoptive parents and just um, myself that I had, uh, I had to be okay with myself before this process happened because I didn't want to go into this like angry for this and angry for that because when I was younger, 
to be honest, I used to always think that like this is, you know, this is just temporary. Like she's coming to get me, you know, I'm just hanging out here. She's going to come get me. She's going to realize that, you know, uh, what a great kid she had and she's going to come get me. So like I had all these feelings I had for such a long time, but um, over the years, you know, come to, you know, peace with all that. So finally, when I did ask her about it, um, I kind of accepted the answer because, um, you know, when she was older, she wasn't in the best uh, living situation. I have an older sister who has autism, who was kind of a handful, and she didn't feel like she could take care of her and take care of, you know, a young child at the same time. Mm. So, uh, you I got understood. The answer. You got the answers you were looking for. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Lembo, uh, you've uh, adopted uh, three boys. Um, how have you and your husband talked about, uh, you know, when this conversation comes up with your children? Maybe it already has. Like, how do you navigate that with them? Because um, naturally, uh, it's they want to know, maybe you know, who their biological family family is. Sure, um, and not unlike Marvin's family, you know, it's very obvious that they are adopted. So it's always been part of their story. Um, and I think as a adoptive parent, you walk this line around, you know, affirming the dignity and the love of a birth parent who has made a decision that was probably the most difficult decision in their entire lives that has brought you the greatest joy and has created so much uncertainty for the child. Like all at once, all these things are happening. So our older two, um, you know, came into the child welfare system um, in very difficult circumstances. It wasn't just a conscious decision on the part of their birth mother to surrender her parenting. Um, so it was a protective placement. So uh, that was really hard to chase down. Um, and uh, actually, we haven't successfully chased that down. And they haven't really expressed the burning desire. And we always check in with them, as we do with our younger one. Like, you know, you know we'll help if you want to know. Our youngest um, also, same offer, his birth mother, who I met uh, when I went, flew down to get him, uh, had dinner with her the first night, and then uh, he came to us uh, the, the next morning, um, always said, you know, when he's like 15, 16, if he wants to meet me, I would consider that, she said. And so we, there's a run-up to that, right? So you are working with an adolescent who's got so much else going on, and you're like, okay, if you want to do this, we will help you. And often he would get to a decision point and then back away from it. Um, and as someone myself who, who never knew my birth father, I know what's going on you know, because, you know, I had the dream dad, you know, built up in my mind for this person I had never met. And I'm sure some of that's going on as well. Um, but now, you know, he's 19 uh, and he hasn't ex expressed a desire uh, to meet her. And so we've begun the process uh, of connecting the two of them um, and trying to sort of, again, walk this balance between affirming this as a wonderful, positive thing, um, but also being wary that, you know, maybe she doesn't want to meet him, or maybe the reality of her is not what he expects, and what does that mean for him? Because at the end of the day, we're his parents, and my job is to protect him from any hurt I can, um, but some hurts I can't protect him from. Mm -hmm. So... Um, so we're literally like in the middle of that now. I, I learned about the identity of my birth father just last year. Mm. Ancestry DNA, you know, doing that whole deal and found out I have two half, half siblings and met a cousin and, you know, was able to actually touch the hand of my cousin and know that this is like the DNA that is like mine. You know, mm -hmm. I'll never meet him because he's gone. Uh, but, you know, 
there is another branch to my tree that for a long time wasn't there. Marvin, you also tried some DNA tests. Yes. Uh, this summer was the first time I did uh, Ancestry.com because for a couple different reasons. One, um, my son, I wanted to be able to tell him that, you know, he's not just African-American, like where exactly, you know, his roots are from. And also just to reach out to see if uh, I do have, you know, the other half of like my father's family, if there's anybody like, you know, that I could connect to and kind of put to start to put the pieces together. Mm. Uh, we're going to take some calls. Uh, this is where we live uh, today. Again, we're focusing in on adoption, uh, whether uh, you're a parent who was adopted or thinking about it, or maybe you were adopted. Kevin Lembo's in studio with us, who's an adoptive and foster parent, and Marvin Chrisley, who was adopted in, in 1972. Uh, Judith is calling from Rocky Hill. Judith, go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. So tell us about your experience. Yes, I have a very unique experience. My two children were adopted, their birth brother and sister, and they were my ex-husband's third cousin. So it was a family-identified adoption. And through that process, their birth mother became their third cousin, and their great-aunt became their adopted grandmother and so on and so forth. Uh, it's, you know, 25 years later, and my daughter is the first female in many generations of this family to not only be graduating college, but not to be a teenager, teenage mother herself. So we've really broken a pattern and set a new standard for success in this family. And uh, now that you're talking about the, uh, the linkage or lineage of your adopted people on your program, and hi, Kevin Lembo from Judith Green. How are you? Hey, Judith. Uh, we did the lineage of my children, and we found out that they are not only related distantly to Jim Morrison of The Doors and John Wayne, <laughs> but they are related to royalty, and their lineage goes all the way back to Rollo the Viking. Wow. And Yeah, and we did a whole uh, banner of the castles and their royalty and heritage of their family. So that's been a very interesting and exciting uh, process that we've gone through. Well, Gina, thank you so much for sharing just a bit of your family's story. Uh, there's something you said uh, earlier, Marvin, about when you finally um, were of the right age and mindset to find or want to find your biological family. When you when you got the, the records, uh, your mother had indicated that um, if down the road her child wanted to, to try to meet her, that she would be open to that. I'm just curious about the laws here in Connecticut, because that's something that's comes up uh, several times in recent years. And, um, you know, not everyone has that uh, opportunity to track down their biological mother or father, even if they wanted to. Maybe, Kevin, you could uh, shed some light on that. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, laws have been passed in Connecticut, uh, and I think they're great laws that allow uh, adoptees to get access to their birth certificates. Um, but it's interesting when you think about, as we were saying earlier, that how times have changed around all of these issues. You know, so now the decision to place a child for adoption um, is not, quote unquote, a dirty little secret in most cases. Right. Folks are doing this um, in, a, in a thoughtful way. Um, but when you think back to now adult adoptees now reaching back through time and trying to meet someone who may not want to be met, right, or may not want anyone to know that they made this decision to to adopt, it's it's difficult, um, and that's where you know a, an additional rejection can can settle in. 
Uh, but at the end of the day, I think the rights of the adoptee, of the child, even if they are now an adult, uh, need to take precedent um, over adults who made decisions years ago. Um, and I know that's a hard thing, uh, but it would be nice if we could be open. Mm-hmm. Marvin, what's your take? Um, well, I used to joke about my uh, birth certificate because uh, my birth certificate says Chrisley's. So the Chrisley's adopted me when I was three. So I used to joke with people that I'm actually three years younger than I actually am because <laughs> that's what my birth certificate <laughs> says. And also, they um, my birth certificate says Honolulu, Hawaii, and that's actually where they resided when they started the process, even though I've never been there. So it would look like I'm Hawaiian, but I've never been to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> in terms of uh, the process, um, I think they should all know um, there's got to be some type of way where you can know about your family. doesn't necessarily mean like, you know, that's my family. I have the right to contact them. But just, you know, the the thing that I live every day. I mean, I work in New Haven. I mean, I could have uh, distant nieces and nephews who work at my school that are actually family, but I would never know because I don't know that part of my family and was right. just would never get to know them. And, and health, right? So we know how, so much of this is genetic, our predisposition to hypertension, to certain cancers, to, you know, this is there's a lot of a genetic underpinning. Um, how much healthier might we be if we knew sort of what we're up against. Um, And so knowing even a basic health profile on birth parents is helpful um, for an adult trying to navigate um, while trying to live as long as we can. Mm. Um, Marvin, I believe you have a child. And what do you want him or her to know about your experience? Um, Well, it's interesting to say that because it's uh, now that he's eight, he's just recently started to ask more questions about Oh, yeah, my dad was adopted. Like, you can tell people, yeah, my dad was adopted. And, um, you know, he does have, uh, or he had, like, three grandmothers, and he had to be able to know how to explain, like, why he has three grandmothers. And that's because, you know, I was in touch with my biological as well as my adopted mom. And uh, um, I tell him that what a wonderful experience it was and that if he ever wanted to do that in the future, you know, that I would totally encourage it. And that, uh, you know, I'm the better person because this happened to me. Marvin Chrisley, again, is a physical education teacher at Lincoln Bassett School in New Haven, Connecticut, adopted by a family in Ledger in 1972. We really appreciate you coming in to tell us your story, Marvin. Thank you very much. Also, Kevin Lembo, who's an adoptive and foster parent of three children. Thank you, Kevin. I'm happy to be here. And did you want to just share a quick resource? a a quick plug. Uh, DCF, there are still lots of waiting kids who need a foster family or an adoptive family. 1-888-KID-HERO. 1-888-KID-HERO. Even if you're not sure, dial. They'll help you figure it out. And we'll be sure to share that uh, on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. And we'll tweet it out as well. Kevin, thank you so much. Great to see you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, Americans have adopted nearly half a million children from other countries since the 70s. But that's now on the decline. We're going to find out more after the break. And we'll take your questions, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is
is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about adoption today, and we wanted to know more about the process. There's different ways to adopt, whether domestically or through an international agency. So joining us now is Ryan Hanlon, Vice President for the National Council for Adoption. Ryan, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you for having me on your program. So uh, we've heard from a, a couple of people living in Connecticut about their experiences, but um, you know we've also been getting some calls from listeners who are curious about adoption and, and maybe they want to go the international route. What are the ways to uh, be able to build your family, um, the, the, the traditional ways to adopt? So there's three primary ways to adopt. Um, your guest, Kevin, talked about his adoption from the public system through the foster care system. That is by far the most common type of adoption in our country. Um, another way to adopt would be through a, a local private uh, adoption agency. Um, those would be the infant adoptions that, um, that we know about. There's about 18,000 or so of those adoptions every year in our country. Um, and then the third way would be through inter-country adoption. And the way to do that would be to also work with an adoption agency that's working in various countries around the world. I mentioned that uh, there are stats from the State Department that show uh, international adoptions are on the decline. Why is that? Well, it's a complex issue, and so there aren't simple answers. Um, there are particular countries that have shut down to adoption. Um, there's been a rise of nationalism in some countries, but um, I would point actually to our government and the policies they've made, which have made it uh, much more difficult to adopt, much more expensive to adopt. Um, and unfortunately, I think our government is not cooperating well with other countries to find solutions for uh, the children that are waiting. There are, there are more than... Um, there are many tens of thousands of families that, that would be open to international adoption, and there are millions of children around the world. Um, so it's not for lack of, of um, parents, and it's not for lack of children. It's a bureaucracy issue. What about cost? I know for those of us who may not be familiar with the adoption process, we hear these anecdotes that it costs thousands of dollars, and, and you know, prospective families are waiting, and it can be a very frustrating time. It certainly can be, um, and that process has, um, as I said, become more expensive um, and, and has taken longer um, because of some of the policies our government has put in place. Um, the average international adoption is going to cost the family about $30,000. Um, there is a, a very generous um, tax credit that families can get after an adoption, um, but um, because it's so expensive and because it's so difficult, um, it ends up being something that's really only available to the middle class or the upper, upper class. Uh, Stacy had called in earlier. She wants to know more about resources available for international adoption. Where can she and other families go, Ryan? Well, um, our organization, the National Council for Adoption, has a lot of resources on our website, adoptioncouncil.org. Um, that would be a good place to look for an adoption agency um, in Connecticut or um, an international adoption agency. You can search by country there. Um, the um, Health and Human Services has a, a, a great website that you can look at um, for um, better understanding adoption from foster care. Uh, and because we're in Connecticut, we wanted to welcome into the conversation someone uh, who works in Connecticut with uh, uh, families that are interested in adopting, have already adopted. I want to welcome into the conversation now Jocelyn Benoit, licensed clinical social worker with the Adoption Assistance Program at UConn Health. Jocelyn, welcome to our show. Uh, thanks for having me. So tell me about what families you and your coworkers uh, focus on, and uh, you know what are some of the challenges when a family does decide to adopt and they've now um, have the child in their home, and maybe it's not the the easiest. Uh, wh where do they go for help, and how do you sure. help them? Sure. 
So we work really with any family who has a finalized adoption in the state of Connecticut, um, as well as families who have taken guardianship of children in the state of Connecticut, and we also work with adult adoptees. Um, Most of the families who call us are struggling in some way. Um, You know, unfortunately, uh, you know, when you adopt, you don't always have um, information or access to information about these children's early beginnings, what their birth mother's pregnancy was like, what they were exposed to potentially in utero, and then what, you know, those exposures could mean for the child's development once they're in an adoptive home. Um, And so there's a lot of unknowns that come with adoption. Uh, I mentioned Ryan is with us. Again, when people think about adoption, especially overseas, they may be thinking about uh, the trauma that child uh, may have endured. And, you know, once the, the adoption takes place, you know, what are some ways that these families can be helped and maybe even to clear up some misperceptions out there, Ryan? Yeah, thank you. You're right. Um, many of the, the children have experienced trauma, um, perhaps all of them um, to some degree. Um, living in an orphanage itself would be a traumatic experience. Um, and then many of the children that are, are being placed, uh, most of the children being placed, have a medical special need of some sort. So um, Connecticut has a lot of resources. Your, um, your other guest um, mentioned um, that they work with any family that has adopted or um, has guardianship. Um, that's not true in every state. So Connecticut really does have a lot of resources available um, through the um, through your um, foster care system and through your child welfare system. You really do support families very well there. Um, but the, on the whole, families are, are very successful. Families that adopt internationally, families that adopt domestically are very successful. Um, there are um, needs for that children who've experienced trauma have, um, but once they're able to uh, receive services, those children really thrive. Mm-hmm. And Jocelyn, what about when it comes to screening uh, the families who are taking in the children, uh, people who want to be foster parents and then eventually adopt? Is uh, the screening enough? Uh, um, I would say it's mixed. You know, I, I think the thing that we are learning, again, in our program, we work with families after they adopt and we work with families who are struggling. So let me just say that. So families are calling us because something is really difficult, something's really hard, and they're not sure what to do and where, where to turn. So those are the calls we get. So absolutely, I would say tons of families are very successful. And even the families that call us, these problems may be just a blip, and we need to find them the right resource. Um, we need to get them the help they need. And then, you know, they go on their way and are empowered to parent this child that's in their home, and hopefully will be forever. The thing we struggle with here is when, um, you know, families don't maintain that commitment when it is really hard. And so I think it's challenging to you know, prepare families for the incredible amount of unknown and to, um, you know, tease out whether or not they will be committed for a lifetime because, quite honestly, these children need parents for a lifetime, not for, not until they're 18, you know, not until they enter the teenage years and it gets really difficult, not until their birth families kind of reemerge and then that, you know, creates some strife within, you know, their new family. Um, We really need families to commit for a lifetime. Um, And so that's challenging, I think, sometimes to assess at the time when you're doing a home study. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I mentioned you're with the Adoption Assistance Program at UConn Health, and yes. so if people want to connect with you who yes. may be struggling, how do they do that? Sure. Um, so we, um, they can find us on the web um, at uh, aap.uchc.edu, um, or um, if they're within Connecticut, they can call us toll-free at 877-679-1961, or if they're within Connecticut, they can call us at 860 860- Six seven nine four zero zero six, and we'll be sure to share that information on our website wmpr.org/slash/where we live. And I want before I let you go, Jocelyn, for people who may not have good insurance or they don't they don't have a lot of financial means, sure. uh, is, are these supports still available to them? Absolutely. So, so um, you know, families who adopt in the state of Connecticut get Husky insurance as a benefit, um, you know, to adoption. It's really an incentive in some senses. And we are finding more and more providers um, take Husky insurance. So that is, is a huge bonus. Um, as well as any family who calls us who needs a particular service that is not covered by their insurance, we do have funds to help families access those services. Um, if not covered by their insurance, especially therapeutic services um, to, to, you know, help families get the access to what they need. Well, we want to thank Jocelyn Benoit again. She's a licensed clinical social worker with the Adoption Assistance Program at UConn Health. Jocelyn, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Also with us today was Ryan Hanlon, Vice President for the National Council for Adoption. Ryan, again, uh, we'll make sure we have those resources on our website, and we'll tweet out the links for families who are interested in adoption, whether domestic or international. Ryan, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And just a a quick plug, there's 118,000 kids waiting for adoption in our country. Thank you, Ryan. Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Special thanks to Herman Baskoff. And our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, and thanks for listening.